Chapter 8 of Cordelia the Magnificent This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott Chapter 8 Near the Heart of Mystery She stood, a motionless dryad, among the branches for half an hour, until each stiffened leg had changed into a column of prickling anguish. But at last she heard the three leave the house, one after another. She waited on, despite the torture of limbs that had gone to sleep, until finally she judged that her path was safe. She parted the branches, and attempted to step outward, only to have the paralyzed legs collapse and send her toppling to the soft earth. For several moments she lay there, a helpless, agonized cripple. That was an absurd anticlimax to such an adventure, her legs asleep. But the discomfort of that condition was a mild sensation compared to the dismay she felt when, after swaying tinglingly across the lawn, she found that all the doors of the darkened house were locked. She had never thought of this contingency, so had not brought her latchkey, and Mitchell, after his return, had seen to his butler's duty of securing the house for the night. She was locked out. What should she do? Her legs still unsteady beneath her, she leaned against the door-jab, considering. She thought of ringing the bell, but no, that wouldn't do. It might in some way lead the three to suspect that she had been eavesdropping upon them. She thought of sleeping in one of the guest-rooms out in the playhouse and returning to her own room when the servants opened the house in the morning. But this would not do either, for such a procedure might rouse just as much suspicion as ringing the bell. She was even thinking of getting out her car and driving into the city when... All the while that she had stood there thinking, she had been mechanically fumbling at the knob of the main door, unconsciously rattling it. And now, suddenly, the overhead porch light went on, and this body of hers she had been so frantically thinking how to conceal was now no more of a secret than a statue stark against the sun. The door swung open, and before her stood Mitchell. There was no surprise or other emotion in his face. It was that butler's face in which she had as yet seen no alteration. "'Pardon me for locking you out, Miss Marlowe,' he said in his impersonal servant's voice, so unlike that cool, assured voice which had been coming to her through the open window. "'I thought everyone was in.' She was afraid she had been caught. Also, she felt very absurd. She had to attempt some explanation, since she had publicly announced two hours before that she was going to bed. But the only words she found in her mouth were those same words that had stumbled awkwardly forth that first time she had slipped from her room in the middle of the night and had encountered him. I couldn't sleep, so I went out for a walk in the air. Her words sounded most unconvincing to her. He seemed to accept them. There's nothing better for sleeplessness, Miss Marlowe, he said. She stepped inside on her still uncertain legs. He closed the door. It's rather late, and perhaps you are hungry. Shall I get you a little something? No, thank you, Mitchell. Good night. Good night, Miss Marlowe. She started for the stairway, and then her tingling, undependable legs buckled under her again, and the next moment she was sitting on the floor. Instantly, he was on his knees beside her. You're hurt, you're sick, he cried. For the first time, before her, his butler's grave impersonality had left him. Face and voice were alive with quick concern. Even though Cordelia had just been listening to him when he had certainly talked like no butler, 
she was nevertheless startled by this swift transformation, by this glimpse at someone else. She tried to cover the absurdity of her posture on the floor with a little laugh, and in explanation she told a half-truth. I'm not sick or hurt. I got tired walking and sat down on the ground. My legs went to sleep, that's all. She tried to struggle to her feet. That other person that Mitchell had been departed as swiftly as he had come, and Mitchell was, once more, the butler. Let me help you, Miss Marlowe, he said, slipping his hands beneath her arms. Oh, I can make it all right. You really need assistance, and he lifted her to her feet. And I'd better help you to your room. She protested, but with his servant's formality he insisted, and so they went up the stairway, she clinging to the banister with one arm, his two hands beneath her shoulders with one arm across her back. There was no more attempt at familiarity in those hands than if they had been the hands of a traffic policeman helping a woman across a slippery street, or than if she had been a faltering lady of eighty. But Cordelia was, for some reason, acutely conscious of those hands, not helping her too much, but alert for her to topple, and strong as steel if she should need such support. "'Thank you very much, Mitchell,' she said at the door. "'Good night.' "'Good night, Miss Marlowe.' But as she started in, he spoke again. "'I beg your pardon. I wonder if I might venture to tell you something, ask you something.' At this, her heart raced wildly, and she stared at him. But his expression was exactly as before, impersonal, respectful, of course you may. Go on. He seemed to consider for a moment. After all, perhaps I'd better not, Miss Marlowe. Thanking you just the same. Good night. Good night, Mitchell. She slipped through her door, locked it, and stood leaning weakly against it. Two dominant questions pulsed through her. What was the thing Mitchell had been on the point of telling her, or asking her, and about which he had decided to remain silent? And did Mitchell suspect what she had really been doing that night? What was her real purpose at Rolling Meadows? Presently she managed to get into bed, and she lay there excitedly thinking, trying to arrange in order the fragments she had discovered that night, and from the fragments trying to reconstruct the whole. This last she was unable to do, but four facts stood out, clear, indisputable. First, there was real mystery here at Rolling Meadows. Second, that adopted French war orphan, Francois, was somehow involved in the mystery. Perhaps was its heart. Third, Mitchell was the real master at Rolling Meadows. He had some secret hold over both Gladys and Esther, and through that secret he was able to demand money and get it. He was not merely the perfect butlering automaton. He was a clever man, a man of education. He had talked like a man of the world. He had seemed to be what is usually termed a gentleman perhaps fairly decent, perhaps very evil, but undeniably a gentleman. And with all this, he was undeniably a trained butler. Fourth, Gladys had implied that she had known Mitchell for only a year. From the overheard conversation, it was clear she and Esther had known Mitchell for five years, and known him well, perhaps intimately, perhaps very intimately. That is, they had known Mitchell from about the time they had gone to France. So much was fact. The rest was conjecture, and what a world of conjecture Cordelia's mind traversed in swift excitement. Each question was, in itself, an unexplored continent. Who was Mitchell, really? What sort of a man was the real Mitchell? 
a semi-scoundrel, or a villain competent to conceive and manage a great scheme, and who was now managing it? What was the character of Mitchell's secret hold upon Gladys and Esther? Who was Francois, really? Could Mitchell be the father of the boy, as his light remarks in the playhouse might suggest? If so, that relationship might explain the boy's fondness for Mitchell. But, against this presumption, there were Gladys and Esther both claiming Francois as their adopted son. Could the explanation be that Mitchell had been secretly married, in France, to one of the two, and that Francois was the son of that marriage? No, such a conjecture was plainly preposterous. Gladys wanted to marry Jerry Plimpton, and the clever Mitchell must know of this matrimonial ambition. And as for Esther, the quiet, poiseful Esther did not behave in the least as if she had married Mitchell. And if there had been a marriage, there seemed no sane reason why such a person as Esther should hide both the marriage and her maternity. Cordelia could not find answers to these questions. But behind those questions was a relationship, a situation, that bulked big, tremendously big. She had made great progress in getting at this mystery, and she was going to clear up the whole of it, no doubt of that. At last, she had something worthwhile to report to Mr. Franklin. She would see him the next morning, as early as she could make it. Finally, Cordelia fell into a light, restless sleep. At half-past nine, she was at the wheel of her roadster bound for the city. As explanation for the trip, she had mentioned casually to Gladys that she had an appointment in town with her mother that morning, and had protected herself by actually making an engagement by telephone to meet her mother at their Park Avenue apartment at twelve. At half-past ten, throbbing with excitement over her achievement, and also with suspense as to how Mr. Franklin would take her report, Cordelia was ushered into Franklin's office. The quality of professional reserve which had struck her on her first meeting as Mr. Franklin's outstanding characteristic vanished at sight of her. He greeted her with a frank, cordial smile, though not too cordial. She had an impression that he looked younger and more spirited than on her previous visits, though he had then looked no more than his actual thirty-five. Perhaps years had been cut off his appearance by the fresh candor of his smile, perhaps by his smartly cut gray suit. "'I have been hoping you wouldn't forget your promise to call when you were in town,' he said as he pushed a chair into place for her. "'This isn't a call. Not a social one, anyway. I've come on business, to tell you what I've learned.' "'Then you have learned something already?' "'I think I have, and something big. But you are to judge what it may be worth.' Excitedly, rapidly, Cordelia told of the conversation she had overheard the night before, of Mitchell's hidden authority in the household of Francois, of the possibility of there having been a secret marriage, and she outlined the possibilities, repeated the questions that had come to her during the night. As he listened, Franklin was shot through with amazement. He had never dreamed of such results. But his surprise and exultation he concealed under a manner of pleased commendation. "'What you have told me, Miss Marlowe,' he said, "'helps much towards filling up the many holes in my information.' You are helping me a great deal in this case, a very great deal indeed. From the day she had accepted Mr. Franklin's commission, Cordelia had felt absolutely confident of her ability to succeed. Nevertheless, she relished this praise, and she would have liked it if the praise had been even stronger. You are sure you are not disappointed in what I have done? That brought her just what she was hungry for. How can I possibly be disappointed in you, Miss Marlowe? I expected much from you, very much indeed, 
but you are doing far, far better than I ever expected. No one could possibly have improved upon what you have done. For a time, they discussed the possibilities and the questions Cordelia had propounded. This discussion ended, Cordelia asked, Have you any particular directions you wish to give me for my further action? I'd like to have you pay special attention to that butler Mitchell and learn all you possibly can about him. He seems the center of things out there. I had intended watching him and studying him. Good. And, of course, you will do the same with Miss Norworth and Miss Stevens. Of course. I hardly need warn you that you must be most careful not to let a soul suspect you. Not a soul must know your mission there, much less guess your connection with me. I'll be most careful. Another point. Considering that weekend party you said Miss Norworth is going to give... Cordelia had told him of Gladys's plan for a larger hospitality, and that Gladys's first function under this new program was to be a party over the following weekend. I'd like very much to size up the individuals in this case, and I might have a better chance while a party is going on than when they are alone and on their guard. I presume you can secure me an invitation? As a... Uh, he hesitated. As, as one of your friends. It would be much better he hastened to explain, if they were not to suspect that I was there for a business reason. I can invite anyone I wish. Only, only the people there, my old friends, you know, may be a little surprised by my knowing you as a friend. You see, following out the spirit of your instructions, I have never mentioned you to anyone as a friend. Franklin perceived that he had been trying to move too rapidly. Perhaps, then, it would be wiser if I write to you toward the latter part of the week that I wish to consult you at once concerning your affairs. You, of course, cannot come into town, and that will give you an excuse to ask me out Saturday. I will then come out as your attorney, and not as a friend or guest. In a few hours I can probably gain all the first-hand impressions I desire. To this Cordelia agreed. Won't you let me return this hospitality in advance, by being your host at lunch today? Your mother and sister are lunching with me, a matter of business. Cordelia pleaded another engagement. As a matter of fact, on her way to Franklin's office, she had stopped to telephone Jerry Plimpton, and he had promptly asked her to lunch with him at the Grantham. Some other time, then, Franklin rose with her. One moment, please. I am still the only person who knows about your situation. Your financial situation, I mean. Yes. I am glad of that. I must remind you to continue the same reticence, and must remind you that the success of our business arrangement necessarily depends upon your keeping your social position as Miss Cordelia Marlowe. I hope you won't mind, he smiled pleasantly, my being a partner in your secret. Why, no, she said. It had not before occurred to her as a definite thought that he was the only person who knew her secret, and it did not then occur to her that his pleasant mention of it was a part of a skillful effort to develop in her a growing sense that they two were bound together. He saw her out with his gracious courtesy which did not presume too far. And then, before calling in Kedmore to give his part in the news, he walked over to one of his lofty windows and excitedly gazed down at the broad panorama of this outspread city, seeing none of it. God, what a gold mine this was he stumbled upon! stumbled upon without ever seriously thinking it was there, and stumbled upon it through merely having sent Cordelia Marlowe to Rolling Meadows to fill her time till he found a worthwhile case to put her on. 
that just went to prove how right was the working principle he had so often outlined to Kedmore, that almost every rich and high-placed family had a skeleton in its closet. Just discover the skeleton, and the frantic family would pay anything to be allowed to keep that skeleton in the closet, and keep the closet locked. The family closets of the rich, those were indeed the world's richest gold mines, if carefully worked. And what a find, what a piece of luck, was this beautiful, popular, self-confident Cordelia Marlowe, the ideal instrument for working such mines. But it was not over his particular Golconda, nor over Cordelia as an instrument for precious mining, that Franklin was now most excited. His highest excitement was over Cordelia just as Cordelia, over a somewhat different arrangement for her. In the days which had passed since he had first met Cordelia, and had conceived his bold plan for using her, that plan had become a dozen times bolder and more embracing. Instead of merely representing a hope for financial gain, his plan now represented the sum of all his hopes. New York City, that crowded goal of great and strange ambitions, contained no man with an ambition more calculated, more soaring, more multiform than Robert Franklin's. He wanted money, of course, and was getting it. Money was fundamental to all else. But more than money, he wanted wide public recognition, wanted standing with the best society. Hard and shrewd worker at law, his leisure had been devoted to an intense self-culture, including those superficial graces popular in a man. He was well up on all phases of art that were being talked about, was a devotee of opera, the horse show, the flower show, of all important first nights in the theater. His dancing he had developed under the highest-paid teachers, and each fall he had his steps remodeled by the smartest experts to accord with the latest styles. He was as desirable a bridge partner as he was a dancing partner. He had made himself, and had made himself carefully, and he had gone very far. But for some time he had realized that the further progress of a bachelor of no family would be inchingly slow unless he could secure for himself the magic wings of a fortunate marriage. And so it had come to him as an inspiration that he should marry Cordelia. He was making enough money, at least enough for present purposes. She had incomparable position. What a combination! And his good fortune had brought her right to his hand. Of course he would be patient and adroit and make the attentive love which every woman desires. And if this did not win her, well... If he skillfully played the cards she had unknowingly dealt him, and skillfully played the additional cards he was dealing himself, she would hardly care to refuse him. Of course he would not go to extremes unless extremes were necessary. His getting upon good terms with Mrs. Marlowe had been a clever thought, and he believed he had managed that business of going out to Rolling Meadows rather cleverly. The other guests there would undoubtedly regard him as Cordelia's friend, and would therefore be inclined towards accepting him as one of themselves. That would help. Yes, he had managed extremely well. In fact, marvelously well. As yet, he did not perceive exactly how he was going to carry out his two seemingly contradictory ideas in regard to Cordelia, making her that amazingly valuable business ally which he had first planned that she should be, winning her for the wife who was to lift him to high position. But he would manage it, somehow. Yes, he would manage it. End of chapter 8 Recording by Todd